God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Those opening verses from Psalm 82 in the Bible are very surprising to many readers. We have been taught that the Jewish religion, and all religions historically related to it, including Christianity, are monotheistic. They teach and believe that there is only one God, and that any other God is not real, or worse, some kind of demonic imposter. But Psalm 82 does not fit that narrative very well at all. In it we see Yahweh, the God of Israel, who we are told elsewhere is the only God, in conversation with other gods, who are simply referred to as gods. What the heck is going on here? That is a very good question, and it is a question, I think, that may be best answered in narrative form. Shall we tell the story of the meeting of the Heavenly Council? This is Retelling the Bible. Episode 3.3 Scepter The building is massive, a palace in the midst of a city. But you drive in just managing to snag the last parking spot in the lot. You get out, lock the door, and move towards the main entrance. In the colonnade, there are three figures who are all heavenly armed. The man in charge immediately bars your path with a challenge. Mortals are not permitted to enter. He speaks a foreign language, so you cannot understand what he is saying, but his intent is clear. He wants to know who you are and what right you have to be here. In response, you show him the ring on your right hand. He immediately raises his hands, apologizes, and steps out of your way. You continue on and up the stairs and along a hallway until you hear the voices that are coming through a door. You enter in and find yourself on a balcony. You, together with a number of other spectators, look over the balustrade to see that the meeting is already underway. Around a huge rectangular table is a strange assortment of executives and officials. Some have humanoid forms, though these tend to be extremely idealized in their beauty. Others have human bodies but bear the heads of different animals, though there are a few who have it the other way around with human heads upon beastly bodies. And then there are those who are simply outlandish collections made up seemingly at random. The tail of a snake, the claws of an eagle, the body of a lion, and the head of a dragon. You know, 
that kind of thing. Each one has taken his or her place at the table. Each place has a small microphone and earphones connected to the booth, tucked away in the corner that is providing simultaneous translation. The translation is necessary, of course, given that each one present speaks a different language. Egyptian, Hittite, Babylonian, Greek, and many, many more. The meeting has been going on for some time when you enter, evidenced by the fact that most of the participants are looking restless and bored. But in another sense, it seems that the meeting hasn't really started. That is clear because the only position that matters, the position at the head of the table, is vacant. Each participant casts nervous glances at the door behind that empty space from time to time. As you enter, Ashur, the god of the Assyrians, is finishing his report. He has a long, curly beard and a high crown upon his head. slaughtered the villagers, erected piles of their heads. The king was defeated. His queen, his harem, Prince Ushankuru, his heir, and the rest of his sons and daughters, his property and his goods, his horses, his cattle, his sheep, and countless numbers, I carried off to Assyria. The root of Cush I tore up out of Egypt. There is a smattering of polite applause while Ashur puts down his cuneiform tablet and takes a sip from his water jar. On the opposite side of the room, Amun-Ra, the god of Egypt, scowls. He has blue skin and the head of a, of a hawk. Floating above that head is a sun disk encircled by a serpent that bites its own tail. Amun-Ra snorts and mutters to the servants who hover near him, and I shall have my revenge soon enough. The god Baal stands in his tall, conical hat and glares towards Amun-Ra for a few moments before droning, We thank you, Asher, for your report, and now we shall hear from the new up-and-comer. He nods toward the Babylonian corner of the table. Marduk, and what have you been doing through your people? Marduk stands and bows briefly to the company. He speaks with a confidence that is so extreme that it comes across as arrogance. Death, pestilence, and destruction... Slavery, oppression, and rape are all projected to rise through the roof as we activate our Babylonian cartel. Ten thousand troops, archers, slingers, elephants, and horses are ready to spread across the landscape like a stain. Destroying the life and the livelihoods of millions, they will fall into despair and cry out in the darkness and there will be no one to... Suddenly a soft boom reverberates from beyond the grand doors. 
Marduk falls silent, as does everyone else in the room. Every eye turns towards the great doors. Ashur nervously takes another drink from his water jar. Amun-Ra swats away a hovering attendant, who seeks to wipe a bead of sweat that has just appeared upon his brow. The doors suddenly open, pulled back by unseen hands, and a figure strides in. The room is so dark and the hallway beyond the door is so bright that the figure is completely backlit. Nobody can see his face, but everybody knows exactly who he is. There is not a sound beyond the soft shuffling of his feet as he makes his ways to the chair at the end of the table. Two seraphim flutter in after him. They are massive six-winged creatures. With two wings they cover their feet, with two wings they cover their faces, and with the remaining two they hover slightly off the ground. One of the seraphim holds the chair as the newcomer sits, while the other places a royal scepter in front of the chair. Still, there is not a sound from the crowded room. Everyone waits with anticipation. Finally, the shadowy figure turns to the seraph on his left. There's a quick, whispered conversation, and then the seraph leans over to switch on the microphone in front of him. There's a moment of feedback, because the microphone is clearly set at too high a volume. And then the new arrival speaks, his voice reverberating through the room. Don't let me interrupt you. The sudden stirring in the room makes it seem like everyone else had temporarily forgotten how to breathe for a moment. Marduk continues his report, but the boldness and arrogance with which he had spoken only a moment before seems to have melted away. He stumbles, stutters, and casts many a glance at the head of the table before he mercifully finishes and awkwardly resumes his seat. Once again, silence falls. Mere seconds pass, but they feel like hours until finally the shadowy figure leans towards his microphones. He gives a soft chuckle. <laughs> it's funny, you know, how familiar all of this feels. It happens every time. Every time I come to see you, you are talking about the same things. You are my divine counsel. He leans forward and places his hand on the scepter that lies in front of him. Does any of you deny that it is I who holds the scepter? Remember this. I put you where you are. 
I made you gods and placed you to rule over your nations and kingdoms and peoples. But you forget why I did so. You seem to think that you are there to create misery and murder, devastation and destruction, hunger and hopelessness. Maybe it's my fault. Maybe I wasn't clear when I put you in place that the reason why you are there is to give justice to the weak and the orphan, maintain the right of the lowly and the destitute, rescue the weak and the needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked. You had one job, one job. You were supposed to seek out the weakest, the most miserable, the oppressed and depressed, and you were supposed to use your extraordinary power to lift them up and give them hope and life. You weren't supposed to favor those who were only interested in amassing wealth and power for themselves. You were supposed to show them the folly of such a way. And yet here you are, reveling in the wickedness of your subjects and the misery of their victims. You make me sick. Every eye in the room is intently examining the floor. No one stirs, save for Ashur, who tries to unobtrusively slip his sword off of the table and back into his scabbard, while the shadowy figure continues. I made you what you are. I made you gods and rulers and gave you power that you could never even dream of. Do you think you are safe? Do you think that you're so powerful that the one who made you cannot strip your power away? I say you are gods. You are because I say it. Nevertheless, you shall die like mortals and fall like any prince. And then? apparently in order to demonstrate that his words are no idle threat. The shadowy figure motions to his seraph attendant. He whispers in his ear. The seraph continues to cover his face and his feet with four of his wings, while he picks up the scepter with his hands and flies to the far end of the table with the remaining wings. There sits some minor deity, who will soon be forgotten, quite literally. The demonstration is short and concise. The seraph casually wipes the blood from the scepter as he returns it to its place. I don't like doing things like that, but I feel like you give me no choice. Suddenly, and quite unexpectedly, it seems that Bale receives a dose of courage. He hesitantly stands to ask a question. Uh, boss, perhaps it would help us if you could explain why you want us to do this? 
I mean, are we not gods? And as gods, are we not free to act according to our power? Don't you understand? The shadowy figure calmly replies. When I apportioned the nations, when I divided humankind, I fixed the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of you, gods. My own portion was my people. Jacob, my allotted share. You, standing on your balcony, feel your pulse quicken at these words. For you claim Jacob as your ancestor. You belong to the people known as Israel, the people who struggle with a god. But the name that excites your interest only draws derision from the figures around the table. Amun-Ra, the god of Egypt, chuckles. <laughs> you are talking of the people of Jacob, those Hebrews? Why, they began their lives as nothing more than slaves, building temples to my glory and the glory of my people. They were annoying and rebellious, but they were neither noble nor strong. To this very day, they are nothing but a minor nation of no importance, holding no power. You want to claim them as your people? I do, replies the God of Jacob. And it is precisely because I have chosen to love such a people, these former slaves, these nobodies in your eyes, that I have come to see that the only way forward for the people of the earth is the way of justice, choosing to stand up for the weak, the oppressed, and the forgotten. They are why I know that the way forward is not through power, but through justice. At this, the God of Jacob finally turns his head, which allows the light from behind him to catch his profile. Finally, you see his face. It is a beautiful face, filled with love. But that barely registers for even a moment, for you realize that he has turned his head for a purpose, and that his eyes have met yours, picking them out from among all of the faces that line the balcony. Welcome, child of Jacob, and remember that I do it all for you. There is no question what is described in Psalm 82 of the Bible. It is a meeting that is presided over by the God of Israel, but Yahweh is not the only God present. He is speaking to and berating other deities, who are clearly the gods of other nations. The psalm is clearly not very monotheistic, even though we find it in a book, the Bible, that we've always been told is monotheistic, teaching that there is only one God. Now, the very fact that this account of a meeting is found in the book of Psalms, that is, in a collection of poetry, 
should be a strong indication that we should not simply read it literally. What we have in this psalm is an extended metaphor. It is a metaphor that the ancient people of Israel, who were not, at least at that point in their history, technically monotheists, used as a way to deal with a logical inconsistency between their beliefs and the reality in which they found themselves. They believed their God to be the greatest and most important God in all the universe. They believed their God to be totally dedicated to them through a covenant. And yet, as they looked around at the world, they realized that they were only a small nation of little significance, and there were many other much more powerful nations in the world. That didn't seem to make sense, and this psalm was how they dealt with it. The explanation being that God was indeed the king of all the gods, but that he had given a certain free reign to the gods of other nations, at least for a time. But, they reassured themselves, it would not be for long. God's patience with his servants, the gods of other nations, would soon run out, and then he would take them out, with a certain level of brutality that is not shied away from in this psalm. What should we do with this portrayal of God that is so clearly laid out in Psalm 82? That is a good question. I certainly wouldn't take it literally, and I don't think it was ever intended to be taken in exactly that way. But I do think we need to read it and come to grips with what it says. For most of the past couple of millennia, the way we've dealt with it has mostly been by ignoring it and hoping it would go away. And that's just not going to be good enough. That is it for this episode of Retelling the Bible. Come back at the end of next month for another episode. That will fall just after Easter, so, of course, I think we're going to have to have some kind of rec resurrection story, don't you think? In the meantime, tell other people and rate and review this episode on iTunes or on some other platform to help other people find it. The theme music for the podcast is Ada by Kevin MacLeod. The mood music for this episode is Lightless Dawn. The music is licensed under the Creative Commons, and you will find links to it in the show notes. Send your requests, comments, and questions to Retelling the Bible on Twitter or to our Facebook page, Retelling the Bible. Show notes and commentary for this episode have been posted at retellingthebible.wordpress.com. This is Retelling the Bible, and I have been your storyteller, W. Scott McCandless.